All right, so Luke 24. Now you're saying, well, what are, what are we doing here? I thought we were studying Revelation. Well, hang on tight. Hold your horses. Okay? Luke 24, at the very end of the chapter, look at verse 50. Luke 24, verse 50. This is to set up Revelation chapters 4 and 5 today. So in Luke 24, we see from our perspective what the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ looks like. So in verse 50, y'all there? Then he, that's Jesus, led them, that would be the apostles, out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. So he's, as he ascends, he's blessing with his arms outstretched. And that's why Trinity Murdoch has the statue of Jesus. If you've never noticed this, have you noticed we have a statue of Jesus in the church? And it isn't pass interference Jesus. I know Notre Dame has touchdown Jesus. We don't have pass. It's, it's the ascending Lord with his arms outstretched, blessing his church in word and sacrament. That's why when, when the people that started this congregation, these whacked out German Lutherans, when they started this congregation, they made sure when they built this church and the altar, they reminded you, because the, the, the statue used to be front and center on the altar, the old altar, before Trinity did remodeling. But originally, the ascending Jesus was front and center on the altar to remind you that Christ didn't leave in the ascension. He's still with us, blessing us through his word and sacrament. All right, so that's that. Look at verse 51. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. This is the earthly view. This is the human view of the ascension from our perspective. Now go to Acts chapter 1. While you're going to Acts chapter 1, you will notice that in Luke 24, they worship the ascended Jesus. Did you catch that? All right, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Acts chapter 1. Now remember, Luke wrote his gospel, and Luke also wrote Acts. At one time, those were together in one volume. We've split them up. But Luke wrote his gospel, and Luke wrote Acts. So look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Again, this is the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ from our human perspective, from our point of view, as it happened. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, that's Pentecost, of course, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that actually happens. And now verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. So there you have it. Luke gives you the ascension from our point of view, from a human point of view. 
Now, in Revelation 4 and 5, we will see the ascended Jesus in heaven, and we will see what the ascension is all about from not our human point of view, but from God's point of view. And so, go to Revelation 4. So when we read in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 that John is in the Spirit, that means that he is now seeing things from God's perspective. It's like a bird's eye view, if you will, seeing everything at once. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Now, I didn't go to the football game yesterday, but if I were to go to the football game and I would go and get on top of the Capitol building, to the very top, you know, when the kids do their field trips, they do that. They take the elevator and they go to the very top of the Capitol building. And you can see all of Lincoln all at once. So if I would have gone to Lincoln yesterday morning at the top of the Capitol, I could have watched from like 6 a.m. till about 10 p.m. I could have watched everything happening all throughout Lincoln. But I see it from a human point of view. So if I were to describe to you what took place from 6 a.m. to 10.30 p.m., I would have had to say, this happened first, then this happened second, etc. But I'm seeing everything at once, but I have to put in a certain order, right? But what John is going to see in the spirit, he's like on the Capitol building, and he's seeing everything at once, and he's going to describe what he sees in Revelation 4 and 5. That's what it means when he says he is in the spirit. He's seeing everything at once from God's perspective, and in particular, the ascended reign of Christ over everything. And then the other thing, we will hear in Revelation 4 and 5 that there is a door that's open to heaven. And that will also indicate that now John sees everything that's happening in heaven. He now sees God's perspective on everything. So let me try and say this one more time, then we'll read Revelation 4 and 5. All I can see is with my eyes, and I can see things happening all around me. Now visibly, I don't see Jesus reigning over everything. I don't, and neither do you. Do you? If you do, we need to talk. <laughs> All I see is farmers harvesting, coolmen picking up kids in the school bus, kids going to school, kids getting out of school. I see people driving like mad people to work in the morning at 5 a.m. No joke. It's like I live on the interstate out here. At 5 a.m., the traffic is insane. Okay, That's all I see, and I don't see Jesus reigning. And I might conclude, because I don't visibly see him reigning, that he isn't. Well, Revelation 4 and 5 are going to teach you, oh yes, Jesus is reigning. And here's what it looks like. So have you ever thought about what's going on in heaven? I know kids ask this question of the pastor all the time, because the parents drag the young children to the pastor, and they say, my son has a question, pastor. What's going on when people go to heaven? What's going on? Right? And so pastor has to kind of describe for them, from Revelation 4 and 5, what's going on? And what do you think happens in heaven? 24, 7, 365. We got the hint of it in Luke 24. Jesus, the ascending one, what did the disciples do? Worship. They worshiped. So, see, Missouri Synod Lutherans, this is a bad joke, and my tongue is in my cheek. But Missouri Synod Lutherans in general are not going to like heaven. Why not? Because they don't like to come to church and worship. <laughs> No joke. No joke. You, seriously, you need to tell Missouri Senate Lutherans to say, I don't like to go to church. Say, okay, then you're not going to like heaven. I fear that when you die and Jesus says, come, come to my Father's heavenly mansion, that you, Missouri Senate Lutheran, are going to say, no thanks. No thanks. I don't want to do that. Secondly, that's a bad tongue-in-cheek joke. There's, there, is some, there is some truth to that. 
There is some truth to that, by the way. That's why I say that, okay? But here's another thing. Do you realize that every Sunday when you come to church, you are rehearsing for what? It's dress rehearsal for what? Spending eternity in heaven before the triune God, worshiping him day and night. Now, you might think, I'll be bored with that. I guarantee you, you won't be. Because you won't have any sin. You won't have any pain. You won't have anything that you have trouble with here on this earth. Because it's going to be so good, it's better than you ever could have imagined on earth. Okay? And Revelation 4 and 5 is going to teach us this. If you think you're going to be bored when you die and go to heaven, get over it. It's going to be better than you ever could have imagined in this life. So you're there in Revelation 4? Here we go. After this I look. This is John speaking. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. So now he's going to see what's happening in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. That's Jesus talking to John. He's going to show John what is going to happen after Jesus has preached those seven sermons in Revelation 2 and 3 to the seven churches. So now from Revelation 4 and 5, we get the introduction to 6 through 20. 6 through 20 is going to tell us what's going to take place from the time of the Lord's first coming in Bethlehem to his coming in glory on the last day. But 4 and 5 are going to... Chapters 4 and 5 are going to say, don't panic, don't worry, Jesus has it under all control. At once, I was in the Spirit. Again, that means now I see things from God's perspective. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now this is God the Father. In chapter 5, we will see Jesus. But here you have God the Father. Now why is this important? Well, the last few weeks we have observed that our Lord's seven letters to the seven churches, one of the big things that the church was tempted to do was to worship who? The emperor or the state as divine. Remember that? Emperor worship was big in the early church. And I remind you that all the early Christians, all they had to do was go to the temple where the emperor would be worshiped. And all you had to do was just take a little pinch of incense Put it on the candle, and you could go home, and you were good as gold. A little simple act like that. It's like Travis Kelsey. You all know who he is, right? He does all these commercials now. He's just raking it in. And now he advertises getting the flu shot, another shot, and he gives you the impression that it's really no big deal. Okay? It's no big deal. Go ahead and do it. Well, so also in the early church, it's no big deal to take that little pinch of incense and put it on the candle. No big deal. Two things at once, he'd say on the commercial, right? You know, where he's barbecuing and mowing at the same time? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but the Christians wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And they faced persecution, uh, demonization, and even death. Now, so we're set up in Revelation 4. You don't worship the emperor. You don't worship his bureaucracy, the state. You worship who? Jesus. He's Lord. And, and God the Father in chapter 4 and Jesus in chapter 5 are going to be presented with their entire heavenly retinue. You understand that word, retinue? Their whole court. Because if you went to Rome and you went to Caesar's court, oh, it would be a fabulous scene. 
All the people bowing down in reverence to the emperor and worshiping the emperor with all kinds of songs and all kinds of things. And that's not an exaggeration. Okay? And now in chapters 4 and 5, who's really reigning is God. It ain't, it ain't Domitian, who's the emperor at the time when John writes this, this book. It's Jesus and God the Father. You following me here? So if you want to understand the book of Revelation, it's really simple. The ascended Lord reigns as king over everything. Worship him and him alone. It's really simple. And so I can't help myself because this is so delicious. You remember from the prophet Daniel, don't you? You remember two episodes here. I'm, I'm riffing it again, sorry. But you remember two episodes in the book of Daniel where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar made when the orchestra played. Remember that? The command was, the law was, when the orchestra plays, everyone in the kingdom must fall down and worship the, and the word here is huge, the image of gold. And by the way, in the book of Revelation, we're going to hear this, worshiping the image of the beast. Ah! Oh, if you know your Old Testament, you know exactly what that's about. Image. Nebuchadnezzar, image of gold. Who do you think's image was on that 90-foot statue of gold? Who do you think? Nebuchadnezzar's. Because he contended he's God on earth. All right, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not worship the idol with Nebuchadnezzar's image on it. I'm fully convinced it was his image. If it wasn't, it had to be some other Babylonian god. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and God rescued them. Now, you remember the other episode in Daniel? Remember that? Well, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians, and Darius is now the ruler over everything, and Israel is still in exile. Okay? And Darius, his officials passed a law which said, for the next, I think it's 30 days, I think that's correct, double check me on that. The next 30 days, you can only pray and worship to King Darius. Why would that be? Because he, he thinks he's divine, God in the flesh. Now, the reason why they passed that law is because they hated Daniel. Remember Daniel? Read, the, read it very carefully. Daniel could not be bribed. And remember, why is this important? Because Daniel was a government official in not only the kingdom of Babylon, but it continued in the Persian Empire. He was one of the biggest people in the empire. It would be like a secretary of state of the United States, if you will, or even a vice president of the United States. He was way up there. They hated him, number one, because he was a Jew, and all the Persians and Babylonians had worked all their lives to get to the top, and now this foreigner gets this job. And he couldn't be bribed, he couldn't be corrupted. He was as honest as the day is long. So they pass a law that they know he will break. They do it on purpose, because they know he won't keep the law. And that is when he won't pray. He won't pray to Darius. So morning, noon, and night, Daniel prays to the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when they, and they catch him, it's kind of like today. It's kind of like they, Daniel does it with his iPhone on, right? And they can catch him, because this records everything you say and do. If you don't know that, you better wake up, okay? <laughs> they know everything you say and everything that you do. And so in that day, Daniel had his iPhone out when he prayed in the morning, at noon, and at night, and they got him. And they throw him where? Into the lion's den. But God sends an angel to shut the lion's mouth and rescues Daniel. Okay? My point is this. 
In the early church and still to this day, we learn from scripture that Jesus is Lord, you worship him only. Nothing else, no one else, no matter what it costs you. Any questions about this? All right, back to Revelation 4. So God the Father is seated on the throne. And notice how God the Father is described here and his throne. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. 24 is huge in the Bible. 12 times 12 gives you, or 12 plus 12, pardon me. Not 12 times 12. 12 plus 12 gives you 24. And seated on the thrones were, and there you have 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, the, these 24 elders is a description of the Old Testament and New Testament church. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. This is the church from the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. So look at the retinue. Look at the crowd surrounding God the Father. It's, it's the multitude of millions of believers from the Old Testament and New Testament around him. Why are they clothed in white robes? Because they're pure. How? Because Jesus died for them. That's why they're pure. They're, they're, God the Father considers them to be sinless for the sake of Christ. White. Okay? Golden crowns on their heads. What does that mean? They reign. They reign with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the world wants you to believe that you don't. Jesus doesn't reign, and you don't reign with him. Now we're let in on, on a little secret. What's the secret? The most powerful thing in the world is not Washington, D.C. It's not Rome in the ancient world. It's not Lincoln, Nebraska. What is the most powerful thing going on in the world right now? It is the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns together with his Father from heaven, and the entire church reigns with him on the earth. So the church is the most powerful most powerful, for lack of better terminology, institution in the world. But she looks so weak. And you see, this is how the church mirrors Christ. Christ, here he is, God in the flesh, dead, powerless appearing. Looks like he doesn't reign at all, but here he is, reigning over everything, reconciling the Father through his divine blood. This is true power. This is true power. This is salvific power. And of course, the emperors try to mimic this. Say, no, we have true power. But they don't give their life for the sake of the people. How do, how do emperors and politicians rule? You serve me. You do what I say. You shed your blood for me. True power is the divine son of God does that for you and for your salvation. That's true power. And so let me add this. Let me add to this. Remember in Matthew 28, Jesus says what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That is huge. And so when Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth, says, Now I want you to make disciples of all nations. And how do I want you to do it? I want you to baptize them and teach them. That is the most powerful thing happening in the world right now. So as we've, over the last couple of months, we've observed a couple baptisms. The world yawns. The world sleeps. And generally speaking, so does the church especially the Missouri Senate Lutherans. I tongue in cheek when I say that. Now you're learning something different. The most powerful thing that's happening in the world is the extension of our Lord's reign in teaching and baptizing. What else? Let's push it further. When you come and eat and drink his body and blood, there he is reigning over everything. And his authoritative judgment is 
you are forgiven and you reign with me on the earth. I hope this is helpful for you. Any questions about this? Because I'm really riffing and I'm riffing hard. CPH is going to just have a conniption fit if they listen to this and say, he doesn't follow the study. Uh. Hey, Pastor, Pastor, you were saying about the Lutherans not wanting to say .com or whatever church, but then some of these mega churches have like 10,000 people there. I mean, they're, they're, and they're, but they're not getting any kind of real exegetical type of preaching. They're just, they're having entertainment, you know, but there's packed houses. <coughs> right. Generally speaking, here's what works in, in the United States. This is what works in the United States. Don't judge people. In other words, don't preach the law. What have we learned from Scripture? What do the Ten Commandments do? What's their primary purpose? To show you your sin, Romans 3. So in the megachurches, that doesn't happen, generally speaking. No preaching of law to show you that you are a sinner, right? That's, that's, that's a guarantee. I'll mention some names. Joel Osteen. If you don't know him, God bless you. Robert Schuller, Hour of Power, the Crystal Cathedral. If you don't know him, he's dead now, but his son now runs it. If you don't know this, God bless you. But Robert Schuller, in his book called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation, tells you how much a geek I am. Robert Schuller said, the church's problem is, is that you call people sinners. Get over it, he'd say. You can't do that anymore. The church should never say that to anyone. Okay, and so people bought this in America whole hog. And so you have Missouri Senate Lutherans, and I know this for a fact because I grew up with them in Wyoming, getting out their checkbook and sending checks to Robert Schuller for my congregation, which I grew up in. And I'm going, oh my God, are you insane? I've got the book in my library if you'd like to read it. The New Re Self-Esteem, the New Re Self-esteem tells you everything. We have moved from biblical theology to what? Therapeutics. Therapeutics. So here's my point, Mike, to piggyback on what you said. If the law is not used to show people that they are sinners, then guess what else you can't preach? You cannot preach the gospel. Because the gospel is the forgiveness of sinners and their sin. So both of these are lost. And, and so when you lose both of these, and particularly the gospel, seriously, test me out on this. If you go to the mega churches in Lincoln and Omaha or the United States, you test me out. You test me out. Ask the pastor. I want you next Sunday, I want you to publicly and categorically tell us that Jesus has forgiven us all of our sins. And generally they'll say, well, you already know that. I don't need to preach that. I need to grow the kingdom. And I'm not exaggerating. Okay, so when you no longer have this, and especially the gospel, you are no longer what then? You're no longer church, and that's why you said before we talked today, Mike, when Jesus says in Revelation 2 and 3, if you will not repent, and if you will not be faithful, what did Jesus say to the churches? I will take away your lampstand. And, and so they still think they're church, but they're not. So this is, you know, so if I die of a heart attack tonight, and you get eye candy pastor next week, and he says, well, I ain't going to do this anymore. You know, if he's got the torn jeans and the T-shirt, the you know, with his pecs showing, you know. That's how they all dress now, right? The eye candy pastors. I'm not exaggerating. That's how they dress. The skinny jeans, the tight T-shirts, and they work out 24-7, you know. 
because that's what the young white, white drinking, wine drinking women want, by the way. <laughs> now I'm, I'm in a really riff. Now I'm in a really riff. Now, I have to be careful, but I have been thinking about this for a long time. Um, and I, I, I've been struggling a lot for a long time about why, why can a church like Trinity have a service like we have Sunday after Sunday, and yet in other congregations in the Missouri Senate, you have something completely different. Now what I'm talking about is a band. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that a band in and of itself is evil. Okay? I'm not saying that. Um, can you have a big screen? Yes, I'm not saying that's in and of itself. It's evil and sinful. But I've been trying to figure out how can this be in the Missouri Senate where Trinity Murdoch does what we do. We just simply follow the hymnal. Emmanuel Eagle does it. Emmanuel Louisville does it. And then you can go to Lincoln and Omaha, and then you don't even, if you don't even, is this even a Lutheran church? Okay? And I mean, what is going on here? Now, this is going to really get me fired. One of my, one of my uh, teachers, who's now in heaven waiting for the resurrection of the body on the last day, he would always remind me of Exodus 32. Remember Exodus 32? What happened in Exodus 32? Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving all the instructions about worship, the temple and all its furnishings, or the tabernacle and all its furnishings, etc. And he's up there a long time. And the Israelites get impatient. And they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, remember? And what, what do they say to Aaron? Do you remember the story? Well, back it up a little bit before they say, make us a calf. What do they say to, what do they say to Aaron? <laughs> Moses ain't coming back, I'm paraphrasing. We don't know what's happened to him. He's not coming back. So Aaron, now you're in charge. I'm paraphrasing. Make us gods. And then Aaron does what? Okay. All right, whatever floats your boat, I'm paraphrasing. So take off all your gold earrings, your gold nose pieces, all your diamond studs that you have in your ears and nose and your belly button and all that kind of and all melt it down, and he built a what? A golden calf. And it says in the old King James that the Israelites rose up to play. That's a very kind way of saying they had an orgy. They practiced worship like they did in Egypt, like the Egyptians would do. They had an orgy in front of the golden calf. Now, <clears throat> my, my instructor, who would always reference this story. Here's what he would say, and I don't paraphrase, I quote verbatim. He said, and I quote, Aaron had the wrong genitalia. <laughs> if you don't understand what that means, let me tell you. Aaron became a feminist, kind of like pastor, and was no longer a man. Aaron should have said, no, no, no. I will not do that. Instead, he did. And then when Moses comes down off the mountain, because God tells him, your people, look at what your people are doing. Remember that? Huh. Moses has to remind God. No, they're yours, by the way. But uh, your people. And he goes down, he finds out what they're doing, and he confronts Aaron, his brother. And I'm going to paraphrase. Moses says, what's happening? What have you done? And what does Aaron say? I'll paraphrase. Well, you know, you know, you know, yeah, you know. And so just out popped this golden calf. And here's my point. I, I think part of the issue here in the Missouri Senate and the church in general, especially the Protestant church, is that we have, we have pastors who are like Aaron. 
who will give people what they want. And generally speaking, and I'm going to really get in trouble, the white wine-drinking woman, whether it's the mother, the wife, the divorcee, or whatever, they like rock and roll, and they like emotional stuff like that, and the pastors know who's buttering their bread, and they give them what they want. No reaction? Goodbye. See ya? Goodbye? <laughs> Is that it? Go home? But does the scripture say just a little leaven, you know? A little leaven leavens the whole, whole loaf. So, so yeah. I'm saying you let something come in. I mean, I don't have any problems with drink, man. I've heard of everything like that, but it starts to morph into, well, now it's all, right, or 90% of it. So it's just, it, it takes away from, quite frankly, it takes away from the sermon because your sermon is just like two minutes. Well, there are a number of things I want to say, and I want to, I want to give a caveat like I did at the beginning. On the one hand, if you, have a, if you have a rock and roll band up front, does that mean you've sinned in and of itself? Not necessarily. If you have a screen up front and put everything on a screen, does that mean you've sinned? Not necessarily. Here's what I want you to consider. Consider this. That style flows from a substance. I'm going to repeat that. A style always flows from a substance. Let me give an example. Again, I'm an old man, and I'm crotchety, but every week I get more crotchety, as you can tell. I remember when Mikhail Gorbachev decided that he was going to tinker around with the style of communism in the Soviet Union. He thought that he could bring capitalistic economics to the Soviet Union and still be communist. What happened? The Soviet Union fell. Now, there are other reasons why the Soviet Union fell, but this is part of it. So when he decided that he could bring in some other substance and still be communist, or a different style and still be communist, it didn't work. Are you following that? So for example, in, the opposite would be this in America. America. American politicians can say democracy, 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 capitalism, capitalism, cap all they want. And when they import socialism, 24 7 365 and still say that we're capitalists you're all going you're idiots that doesn't work right capitalism the united states will fall now so similarly in the church here's my point there's a certain there's a certain with a certain style of worship comes a substance so with rock and roll bands that style there's a substance behind it that's what you have to be careful of and what, will the, what is the substance of rock and roll band worship, generally speaking? This gets eliminated. Now, not always, not always, but if, if a Missouri Synod congregation is going to adopt a certain worship style that has a substance from Pentecostalism, we have to be exceptionally careful. Now, I'm going to quote Pastor Solberger down the road, who was in a praise band for a long time. He did this for a living. Talk to him about it sometime. And he'll tell you, this is in general, not always, not always the case, but he will tell you that if you're in a praise band, it, gi it gives you great adrenaline and a feeling of power because you can manipulate people's emotions to where you want them to go. And you can get them to do anything you want. Now having said that, a guy like me doing the, what we do on Sundays, that's the same danger as well, okay? Being fair, okay? So you have to diagnose. 
Why are you doing something? Where does this come from? Etc. Now, I riffed really hard there, and I really opened a can of worms. But I think we need to have an honest conversation about this. Because on the one hand, I can talk to pastors in the Missouri Senate who say, Brent, I believe all the same theology that you do. But then why is it that you won't use a hymnal? You know? Why is it that you won't do a confession and absolution on a Sunday morning? And that's not an exaggeration. Why won't you do it? Jesus mandates it to be done. Matthew 16, Matthew 18, John 20. So why won't you do that? Why won't you do the first part that's in him, or confession and absolution? When you say you have the same theology. See, now we're getting to the rub now, you see. Why is it that you won't practice? Why won't you, why, 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 why won't you give out the Lord's body and blood on a regular basis? Why do you make that some extra? When you say, well, I believe the same thing you do, Brent. So I, I don't know if I'm making any sense. Do you have any questions about this? Because this is an issue that we need to deal with. All right, Revelation 4. What do they say, Pastor, when you tell them, why don't you do confession and absolution? Well, they'll give all kinds of excuses like, well, you know, uh, here's one excuse. Well, I can't do that because if I, would, if I would absolve an entire group of people, there are unbelievers there, there might be a Mormon there, there might be a Jehovah's Witness there, and I don't want to give them the wrong impression that they're forgiven. Now, I, I argue this. I argue this way. Remember the parable of the sower? When the sower goes and sows out the seed of the gospel, the, is the sower concerned about where he throws the seed? No, he could care less. He throws it everywhere. He's reckless with preaching the gospel. That's the way preachers are. They're reckless in preaching the gospel. So when I get up in the pulpit, you'll notice I don't begin my sermon this way. Now, I'm only talking to believers now. Now, if we have a guest who, here who is an unbeliever or a Mormon, ain't talking to you. Now, I recklessly, categorically preach the gospel. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the words of the preaching of Christ. So that preaching the gospel could very well convert the unbeliever. Anything else? Oh, man. Okay, Revelation 4. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. What's that sound like in the Bible? Here you're seeing God the Father on his throne, and when you hear it, what's it sound like? What do you see? Flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. What's that remind you of in the, in the Bible? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, Exodus 20. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Who's that? That's the Holy Spirit. So when we see God the Father, you see the Holy Spirit. Because you can't divorce the three persons of the Trinity. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Real quick side note and to explain that. Sea of glass like crystal. Do you remember in the Old Testament, you Old Testament scholars, when Israel decided to build a navy, what happened? It was a disaster. And then secondly, when you read the Old Testament, the sea is always the place where who lives? Antichrist, behemoth, remember behemoth, Leviathan, remember those? The monsters in the Bible who, who describe beasts, beasts, Revelation, we're going to hear about beasts that comes from the sea. But here you have a sea that is clear as glass and is smooth. Because in the Old Testament, the sea represented what? All the forces of Satan and Antichrist against God's church. 
It's why, by the way, oh, this is really riffing it, but I can't help myself. You remember in the New Testament that the apostles are on a boat on the sea, right? And the wind and the waves are buffeting the boat. And where's Jesus? He's asleep in the back of the boat on the cushion. And they shake him. Oh, wake up, wake up. Don't you care that we are perishing? And Jesus gets up and he speaks. Be quiet, be muzzled, literally in Mark's gospel. Be muzzled. And the winds and the waves cease. Still. This is what you have here. Okay? Okay? Before the throne, there is no antichrist. There is no satanic rule. Okay? There is no behemoth and leviathan in charge. Okay? Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. And these are angels. Angels. Full of eyes in front and behind. If you read the book of Ezekiel, you will have a similar description of them as well. The first living creature looked like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third, like had the face like of a man. And the fourth, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. You have something similar in Isaiah 6 with the seraphim. Or is it the cherubim in Isaiah 6? Double check me on that. They're full of eyes all around and within, and day and night. They never cease to say, and what do they do? They worship. They worship. Holy, holy, holy. This is Isaiah 6, remember? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then, who is, who was, and who is to come. That means eternal. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, this would be the church of the Old Testament, the church of the New Testament, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and dun da da just like in Luke 24, they worship him who lives forever and ever. So if your children or grandchildren ask you, grandma and grandpa, if they ask you, what, what do people do in heaven, grandma? You can tell them. They worship. Who do they worship? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. This is taught here in Revelation 4 and 5. But this is the reign of Christ. We're going to get to it in chapter 5. It was seraphim. Seraphim, thank you. That's Isaiah 6. Thanks, Mike. They cast their crowns before the throne and they say, and we sing this. We have this in our hymnal. This is the feast of victory for our God. Hallelujah. Remember that? This is based on these texts in Revelation 4 and 5. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And this is giving two middle fingers to the emperor. No joke, and it's not exaggeration. This is two middle fingers to the emperor Domitian who says, I am God, you will worship me. And the church says, no, because we will worship God the Father and his Son only. Make sense? Because that's what's going on in heaven. So we see what's happening in heaven from God's perspective, not ours. Earlier, Luke 24, Acts 1, that's our human perspective of the ascended Christ. Now we get the heavenly. Are you picking this up? Now chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Now a scroll with seven seals would be describing the history of the world. Who is worthy to be in charge of this history? No one on earth is. Who is? Let's keep reading. Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who's that? That's Jesus. That's how Jesus was described in the Old Testament as the Messiah. The lion of the tribe. And Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. The root of David. That is, he's the descendant of David. Jesus is. He has conquered. Why? So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Here's the point. The history of the world is in whose hands? It isn't in Domitian's hand, the emperor. It isn't in the Roman bureaucracy's hands. It's in whose hands? Christ's. Is this making sense? So when you look at the world, it looks like who's in charge? De the devil. Right? And, and the world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. From our perspective. Learn differently now from Revelation. Let's keep going. And between the throne, this is verse 6, and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. So now Jesus has been described in the Old Testament terms, namely lion of the tribe of Judah and a descendant of David, and now a lamb. This would remind you of what? The Passover lamb, right? The Passover lamb. Or the daily lamb that would be offered in the morning and the evening every day. So think of your New Testament now. John the Baptist, remember? In John, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, and what did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's this. Okay? So John sees Jesus standing as though it had been slain. That's this. But he's risen, see? That's why as though it had been slain. So, side note, do a little Google image search. Jesus as the slain lamb. And you will see pictures that artists have painted and drawn of this scene here. Seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven, of course, seven days of creation. But seven horns means power, power, power. In the Old Testament, to have a horn or seven horns means complete power. Uh, and the seven spirits of God, that would be the Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth. Well, no duh, Pentecost and then on. Now verse 7, and he went. This is Jesus, the Lamb. He goes and takes the scroll from God the Father, from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... And the 24 elders, so all of the angel, these angels here, and all the company of heaven, they fall down before the Lamb, and they each hold a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Real quick comment on that. Incense associated with prayer. Think of Psalm 141. Let my prayer rise before you as incense. This is huge in the book of Revelation. Incense associated with the prayers of the saints, the believers. And they sang a new song, saying, 
Now notice who they worship. Is it Domitian the emperor? They do not. They worship Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now why is he worthy to do it? Notice what they say. Because you were slain, namely crucified, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Now, brothers and sisters, those words right there, tribe, language, people, and nation. I remind you, read Daniel. I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar's name. And when the orchestra would play, this is the language that was, would be used. That every, everybody from every tribe, language, and people and nation would fall down and worship the idol of gold. That was Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. Not here. Now everybody worships who? Christ. And you have made them a kingdom and priests, and they shall reign on the earth. Couple things real quickly here. Kingdom, huge. Here's the king, and what's his kingdom look like? This. Here's where the king reigns. And he extends this reign through his church, which is Christ's kingdom. So when we pray, thy kingdom come. Remember, Jesus told us to pray that way. <laughs> Side note. Next time you go to a service where the pastor doesn't pray the Lord's Prayer, after the service, politely say, next time, pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. You really have to do this. Brothers and sisters, you do, because most of the pastors today think that the Lord's Prayer is a nothing. And we don't need to pray it. Seriously, that is a huge problem because Jesus says, I quote him, when you pray, pray this way. And part of it is, pray, thy kingdom come. That's what's on his mind. And he wants us to pray that. So when you pray that, what are you asking for? Thy kingdom come. You're praying that his kingdom, his reign, will come among who? You. And how does he answer that prayer? When you're baptized, when you believe in Christ, when you eat and drink his body and blood and trust him for your salvation, he is reigning over everything, and in particular for you. So the kingdom comes here in time. It is extended in time through word and sacrament. But guess what? There's more kingdom to come. And what is that? On the last day. When Jesus judges the living and the dead. And now everyone, whether they believe or not, Remember Philippians 2? Everyone will bow the knee, whether you believe or not, and you will confess that he is Lord. Now, if you're an unbeliever, that ain't going to get you to heaven. It's too late then on Judgment Day. But the kingdom happens in time, and the kingdom will be extended into eternity. And the book of Revelation will describe the in eternity reign later on in further chapters. Let's keep going. We'll finish this here. I think we have a couple more minutes. Now, I want you to notice... Um, Look again at verse 12. No, we've got to go to 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is what Hebrews 12 teaches as well, where we have come to an assembly of millions upon millions of angels. And they say with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Now I'm going to count. I'm doing this off the top of my head. Now you count with me. To receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. How many? Bingo. There's another seven. So when you read the book of Revelation, notice how many sevens there are. Here's another example. So what kind of worship is this if there's sevenfold worship of praise? What kind of worship is it? Complete. Total. So when, when, when Lutherans and Christians talk about worship in time, this is, this is a description of worship in eternity. But in time, worship is God speaks, God gives, we respond with prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. Remember the first part of the service? He says, you're forgiven. We respond with prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. Then we hear God speak to us in his word. Old Testament, epistle, gospel, sermon. And we respond in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. Then the third part of the service. Jesus speaks and says, this is my body. This is my blood given and shed for you for the freedom. And we respond in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. That's in time. But here in Revelation, this is worship in heaven. And it's a complete and total worship. So seven. I hope that's helpful. Watch for the sevens all throughout the book. Let's finish this. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and even under the earth and in all the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Remember we sing this, this is the feast. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and there it is again. That's what you're going to do when you go to heaven. <laughs> What's the most important word in worship? We see it here in Revelation 5. What's the most important word in worship? Four letters. Amen. What does amen mean? Truth. So I don't know if you do this or not. I'm not saying you have to. But if you want to, you might want to consider doing this. When the pastor says, the body of Christ given for you, say Amen. When the elder says, the blood of Christ shed for you, say, amen. Because that means what? It's the truth. You know, I get worried. I'm going to finish with this riff. I get worried as a pastor when I pray the collect of the day, and I don't hear the congregation say, or all of them say, or sing, amen. Which makes me worry. Did I pray falsehood? Does somebody not believe this to be true by not giving them? And when I, when I preach the sermon, you know, and hardly anyone says, Amen. I'm like, my God, have I preached heresy today? Does, does no one agree with what's been preached? So here's my point. The most important word of worship is amen. I believe it. It's true. That's what you have here in Revelation. Any questions? Amen. Thank you. Oh, my. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. All right, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, 